Almighty and glorious God, we do rise this morning to praise your holy name. Thank you, uh, Father, for the privilege and the blessing of praising you, not just in the assembly, but in our going forth, that we would be worshipers as we gather uh, and as we uh, disperse. We thank you, Lord God, that this day that we might rise and we might come to know you better as we listen for your voice and your word. We thank you that you speak clearly. And in doing so, Lord God, you guide us well. I pray that your servant Mark uh, this morning, Father, would uh, communicate uh, as you have gifted him to. Father, that we might leave this place uh, loving your word more. And Father, we also pray uh, for his time with us, uh, that it would be a a rich and a, a blessed time. Father, we pray that you and all of this would be honored and glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, Mark. Good to have you back. Well, good morning. We're going to narrow our scope a little bit this morning and do just one psalm instead of 150. But I like, um, I like studying those big picture kind of things, and I like teaching on them. My very first sermon I ever preached as a college student was on the whole book of Jonah. And uh, I've preached on the whole book of one and two chronicles before, so I like those big pictures. Help, it helps... Uh, to keep us from getting lost in the forest for the trees. But it's also fun to kind of uh, drill down and focus. We're going to be looking this morning just at Psalm 1. Uh, we talked last night about the fact that the book of Psalms is not a random collection of Psalms, but that uh, they've been purposefully put in a particular order by the Holy Spirit. And Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 really serve as a twofold introduction to the book. If you turn to Psalm 1, you'll notice that there's no title to it. If you turn to Psalm 2, you'll notice that there's no title. But then if you go to Psalm 3, you'll see that it's of David. And 4 is of David. And 5 is of David. And 6 is of David. And 7 is of David. And 8 is of David all the way through the first collection of Psalms, uh, Psalms 1 to 41, which makes Psalm 1 and 2 stand apart because they're not, uh, they don't have that title of David. We call them orphan Psalms. There are about 116 Psalms that have titles. Uh, the rest do not. <clears throat> Psalm 1 and 2 don't. So they stand apart from everything that follows because there's no title. And as we're going to see, there's some things that make them uh, hold together as well. For example, if, if, what's the first word in your translation of Psalm 1? Okay, go to, the, go to the last verse of Psalm 2, and what's the first word? Blessed. So this is what he, one thing Hebrew mothers taught their kids to do. Um, the biggest thing they taught their kids to do in writing is to repeat. Now, our English teachers didn't do that. Our English teachers said, vary your vocabulary... Or what you write will be boring. Hebrew mother said, repeat your vocabulary. How else will anybody know what the main point is that you're trying to make? And so English and Hebrew have two different styles in terms of vocabulary. And uh, among other things, Hebrew mothers would tell their kids, you know, we don't use things like those Americans are going to use many generations from now. Uh, They're going to do things like um, indent to start a paragraph or put extra white space in. We don't do those things. 
So we're going to use repetition to tell people where things start and stop. So if you repeat something at the beginning of one unit and the end of another unit, when they, when people get to that second repetition, they'll know it's over. So one and two are tied together um, by this kind of repetition of blessed at the beginning and the end. And there are other repetitions. Some we can't see unless we're reading in Hebrew. By the way, I'm surprised that you don't have my Hebrew grammar on the table for sale. I, I don't know. I just I thought everybody would want to. I mean, Christmas is just around the corner. What else are you going to buy people for Christmas presents other than a copy of my Hebrew grammar? Oh, thank you, thank you. You know, this is like Chicago: buy early, buy often. Uh, so let's see. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, there's an ancient rabbi who said reading the Bible in translation is like kissing your bride through the veil. There's often just a, I mean, don't misunderstand. You can read your Bible in translation and you can get it for sure, especially everything that's necessary for salvation. But whenever you translate from one language to another, Something a little bit is added, something a little bit is taken away. It's not always quite the same, which is why it's very difficult to tell jokes across cultures. Uh, jokes just don't translate across cultures. There's an Italian expression uh, that translates into English as the translator is a traitor because something is often added or taken away. <clears throat> so in Psalm 1, for example, righteous people are meditating on God's law in order to obey it. In Psalm 2, wicked people are plotting against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now, what do plotting and meditating have to do with each other, other than the fact that in Hebrew, it's the exact same word that's being repeated? And so there are some things that you just miss when you're reading uh, in translation. So bottom line is one and two go together as an introduction and Psalm 1 really tells us why the Holy Spirit has given us the book of Psalms. And as we're going to see, it's not a hymnal. It's not the ancient version of the Trinity hymnal. It's really a manual for teaching us how to experience a flourishing life. Psalm 2 really tells us the overall message of the book of Psalms, and that is that the Lord reigns through his anointed king. Uh, in the beginning, that was David. Ultimately, it is Jesus. We're going to focus our attention in this first lesson on Psalm 1 and the purpose of the book of Psalms as a manual to teach us how to experience more of God's flourishing life. Now, um, those of you who have had young children, have any of you used the children's catechism? Not the shorter catechism, but the children's catechism. It's a great catechism. I recommend that parents use it with their young children for one reason. Parents will learn a lot of good theology if they catechize their kids with the children's catechism. And it's very, I mean, if, you're, if your kids are talking, they can do this. Who made you? God, yeah. I mean, what kid, a one-year-old can do that one, right? Start them young. Um, what else did God make? All things. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. How can you glorify God? By loving him, keeping his commandments. Why should you glorify God? Because he made me and takes care of me. Uh, I remember there, we asked our, our now 32-year-old, he was between one and two, and uh, the question was back then, it's been edited, 
The question back then was, in what estate did God create our first parents? And he looked at us kind of quizzically, and he said, Maryland? <laughs> Where were we living at the time? We were living in Maryland. And uh, so he th it's been changed to, in what condition did God create our first parents? A little bit better for little kids. And the answer is, he made them holy, and he made them happy. And what happened to our first parents after their rebellion? Instead of being holy and happy, they became sinful and miserable. Very helpful. Uh, and those, those two categories of he made them holy and happy. God did not create you for sin and misery. He created you for holiness and for happiness. Jesus hasn't redeemed you to become more sinful and more miserable, but to become more holy and more happy. And that's really what the book of Psalms is about. Let's look at Psalm 1 and how it shows us uh, those two things. Let's start just by um, reading Psalm 1. Uh, are, you, what, are you reading the ESV? Let me switch over. One thing that's nice about having a, a, a digital Bible is that I can just like pick whichever one I want here. Here we go. So Psalm 1. Now you'll notice that uh, in the ESV it says the way of the righteous and the wicked. That's modern. That's a, like the parable of the sower. The ESV translators have put that in. That's not a part of the ancient text. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." Well, the, uh, the Psalms as uh, a happy and a holy life. We're looking at the book of Psalms as a manual to teach us how to flourish. And we saw last night that the starting point of that flourishing is understanding that we are living a doxological life. A flourishing life is a life that knows where we're going. And we know we're going somewhere and where we're going is glory. Uh, our glorification for the glory of God. And now this morning we're looking in our first session at the Psalms as a happy and holy life. And since it starts with the word blessed, let's uh, look at first of all the Psalms and a happy life. And the psalmist does two things for us here. The first thing he does is he paints a picture for us. It's a picture made out of words. He paints a picture of blessedness. Now, that's not a word that you use in the grocery line. Um, you might say, I'm blessed, but there are actually two different Hebrew words that are translated, B-L-E-S-S-E-D, uh, in, um, in, into English, which is why I tell my students they have to know at least some Hebrew. I teach students enough Hebrew and enough computer technology that when they come to Psalm 1, they can make a couple clicks in their software and they can find all the occurrences of the Hebrew word here that is translated blessed. 
and not get it confused with Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Same English word, completely different Hebrew word. So we're looking at this word. We learned a word last night. It was a hard Hebrew word. Hallelujah. Remember that one? Okay, we're going to up the ante a little bit this morning. Everybody said, oh, we learned another one too, didn't we? We learned Tuhilin. Yes, that was a little tricky. Okay, let's learn one this morning. Two syllables, Osh, and just think of your Uncle Ray. Osh, Ray. But remember, where do we accent it? Osh, Ray. So uh, that's the first word in the book of Psalms, Ashrei, which has traditionally been translated blessed. But we want to know what this word means. What is blessed? And we want to say two things about it. Sometimes it's helpful to find words based on their opposite. And that's what we're going to do here to start. Blessed is the opposite of perishing. Look in your translation. What's the last word in Psalm uh, 1? Perish. First word, blessed. Last word, perish. That's not only true in your English translation, that's true in your Hebrew Bible. In other words, in, in this Psalm, the idea of being blessed and the idea of perishing are at what ends of the poem? They're at the opposite ends of the poem. And the poet did that on purpose. He did that on purpose to poetically communicate to you that blessedness and perishing are what in meaning? They're opposite. But there's another subtle detail here. The Hebrew word ashrei starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The Hebrew word translated perished starts with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, the first letter and the last letter are at what ends of the alphabet? Opposite. Because blessedness and perishing are what in meaning? They're opposite in meaning. Unless you think that this is a uh, Hebrew professor who didn't have enough sleep last night, and he's uh, hallucinating, we're going to look at Psalm 112 a little bit later on, and after the initial hallelujah, guess what the first word is? Blessed. Guess what the last word is? Perish. Another poet did the exact same thing. It's not a coincidence. This is intentional. So we can say that, um, we can say that blessedness is the opposite of perishing, but that only helps if what? No. (laughs) Close if we know the definition of what word in particular, it don't, to say something's the opposite of something else only helps if you know what that other thing is, and we might not here. Let's say that this afternoon we go into downtown Montgomery, and there's a street preacher, and the street preacher has gathered 30 people around him, and uh, you hear him from a distance, and he is saying, if you do not believe in Jesus, you are going to perish. Okay, you're going to perish. Now, he means by that that eventually you're going to do two things. One, you're going to die, and then you're going to go to hell. So since that's the way we as evangelicals use perish, it's just natural 
for us to carry that meaning back into the Hebrew Bible, even though these people were speaking a different language and they lived thousands of years ago in a different part of the world in a completely different culture. It's really one of the tricky parts of studying the Bible is not to impose our cultural meaning onto the ancient Hebrew text. It's one of the most fun things in studying the Bible uh, as well. Well, let's see, what does uh, perishing mean here in this context? The poet helps us. The poet gives us two similes, two comparisons, one for the righteous and one for the wicked. What are the righteous like? A tree. What are the wicked like? Chaff. Okay, now, give, uh, give me one word that starts with N, and tell me what chaff is good for. Nothing. Now, I know that we as human beings, we're, we're, we're marvelous. We can, we can take anything and turn it into something. Uh, I follow a number of woodworkers on Instagram, and I just started following this young kid in Australia, and he's called Reclaimed Woodworker. And he just, he just finds old scraps of wood and turns them into cutting boards and wood that you'd think is good for nothing. He's making something out of it. But in general, you got the right answer, right? In general, we think of chaff as being good for, that's perishing right there. Now, did you also notice that in Psalm 1, it does not say that the wicked perish? Look closely. What perishes in Psalm 1? The way of the wicked. Way is a metaphor for a lifestyle. What don't lifestyles do? Starts with a D. They don't die. And where don't they go after they die? They don't go to hell. So perish doesn't mean die and go to hell here. Uh, perish means come to nothing. Amount to nothing. Like chaff. The wicked are like chaff. Their lifestyle perishes. It leads to nothing. It ultimately has no meaning. It has no eternal purpose. It's ultimately good for nothing. It's like chaff. So if, if blessedness is the opposite of perishing and perishing is leading a life that leads to nothing, a blessed life must be leading a life that leads to Something. It must be that you're going to be like a tree. And what's the tree produce? Nothing? Fruit. Meaning. Purpose. That's at the heart of a blessed life. At the heart of a blessed life, a flourishing life, is being able to get up in the morning, look in the mirror, and know why you're here. Believe down in your heart of hearts that your being here makes a difference. Somewhere, in some way, in somebody's life. Now we don't, remember, the, the, the church is a body, right? We're not all hands, we're not all feet, we're not all eyes, we're all different. We all have our individual contributions to make. But having that, now we know what our ultimate purpose is as Presbyterian and Reform types, right? What's our chief end? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we all do that in different ways. You glorify God and enjoy Him in ways that I don't, 
and I glorify God and enjoy him in ways that you don't, a flourishing life is a life that understands who you are and how God has wired you and made you to be the exact unique person that you are. And by the way, every time I use the word unique, i got to give a little mini-sermon. Please remember, nothing is very unique, right? In spite of the fact that newscasters use it all the time, nothing's really unique, nothing's truly unique. Unique is unqualifiable. It's either unique or it's not, right? Because unique means one of a kind. So you're, you're not very unique, sorry, but, but you are unique, each one of you. You've been shaped by God. Your parents, your grandparents, your schooling, all the good things that happened to you growing up, all the bad things that happened to you growing up. It's all part of God shaping you into a unique person to glorify Him, to produce fruit, fruit that absolutely nobody else in the world can produce other than you. When my wife and I first moved to uh, Central Florida, there's uh, in Orlando, there's the Bob Carr Theater, and she was watching PBS, and there was a, uh, a classical uh, composer and concert coming to the Bob Carr Theater. You already know that's not my cup of tea, but she bought tickets, and we were going to go and help us to learn a little bit about the theater in downtown Orlando. And uh, this fellow, the, co- the conductor, was putting on a, um, he was putting on a little educational seminar ahead of the concert. He was going to be playing four pieces of music, two by Gershwin, famous American composer, two by Ravel, famous French composer. And he was explaining why he was doing these four pieces, one Gershwin uninfluenced by Ravel, one Gershwin influenced by Ravel, and vice versa. Well, he told the story that Gershwin, who many hold to be one of America's greatest uh, composers, uh, Gershwin never thought that he was a good composer. And if you've ever watched the movie about the life of the Gershwin brothers, you see this. He always wanted to go to Europe to study how to compose. And in particular, he wanted to learn from Ravel. And in the movie, uh, as well as in the conductor's story, he finally goes to Europe and in a French cafe, he meets Ravel. And he says to Ravel, teach me to compose the way you compose. And with a stroke of genius, Ravel said to him, why would you ever want to be a second-rate Ravel when you can be a first-rate Gershwin? That's genius. Just be honest. How much time have you spent in your life saying if only? If only I could do what she does. If only I had the gifts that he has. How much time have you spent focusing your energy on what you are not? What difference would it make if you would spend all of that energy on who you are? Becoming the best Gershwin that you can possibly be. See, that's being like a tree. That's producing your fruit. That's embracing who you are, the good, bad, and the ugly, realizing that if God wanted you to be some other way, guess what? You would be. He loves you enough. He has the power enough. He has the the wisdom enough. If he wanted you to be some other way, you would be. 
embracing the tree that God has made you to be, living the life that God has shaped you to live that nobody else can live but you. You wake up in the morning with that sense. That's a flourishing life right there. Like a tree. It's the opposite of blessed. It's the opposite of perishing. The opposite of good for nothing. It's a life of meaning. It is a life of purpose. We could put it another way. This picture of blessedness is, it's really the same as happiness in the sense of well-being in every area of life. Go to Psalm 112. We already mentioned that Psalm 112, after the initial hallelujah, uh, it starts and it stops with um, blessed and perishing. Notice how the beginning of Psalm 112 is like uh, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who... They start the same way. Greatly delights in his commands, uh, like Psalm 1. But then notice how it describes this blessed man. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Well-being in his family. Now, I know we're told we're not to be codependent on our children, right? But parents, how easy is it for you to be happy when your kids aren't doing well? It's tough, isn't it? Okay, so maybe not codependent, but certainly we're interdependent. And that blessed life is, how happy are you when your kids are are flourishing? Yeah. Wellness, well-being in the family. Notice the beginning of verse 3, wealth and riches are in his house. Well-being in our finances. His righteousness endures forever. Well-being in our spirituality. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and merciful and righteous. Uh, it is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice, uh, for the righteous will never be moved. He's not afraid of bad news. Well-being in his emotional state. And we could look at other psalms that expand this, but basically this, this ashray, is not only the opposite of perishing, but it's happiness in the sense of experiencing well-being in every area of our lives. And that's what, that's what life was like in the garden. We were ashray. That's what life is going to be like in heaven. We're going to be perfectly ashray. And if we're honest, that's what we want more of in this life. We want, it, we want, we want more of that wellness in our lives, don't we? Someone got a little ill last night. And why did we pray for her to get well? It's because we know in our hearts that God wants Ashray. Now, there's a mystery to God, right? Because if God ordains everything that happens, which we believe He does, Ephesians, He works out everything according to the counsel of His will. Uh, That means the negative as well as the positive. Um, We use the word providence in kind of a strange way as Reformed and Presbyterians. (laughs) Uh, somebody, um, somebody experiences some kind of windfall. And we say, or, or somebody j- just misses being in an accident, car accident. And we say, wow, wasn't that providential? Yes? Well, stop and think about it. If we say wasn't that providential, what's the implication? 
Other things aren't. Yeah, not true. When's the last time somebody was in an automobile accident and you said, wasn't that providential? It was, but we don't use the language that way. We use providence for what the Puritans called God's shining providence. We don't use it for what they called God's dark providence. But it's all providential. Everything that happens is part of God's providential uh, plan for us. And, but when we are in those dark providences, we pray to get out of them. Because we know down deep that that's not what God created us for. Not sin and misery. We know that that's not why Jesus came and lived the perfect life of righteousness in our place and died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and was raised again and ascended to the Father's right hand. We know that He is not sitting at the Father's right hand praying sin and misery into our lives. But ashray, well-being, and that's where He is leading us. So ashray is um, it's the opposite of perishing. It's a life of meaning. It's the same as happiness, blessedness in every area of life. And um, the second thing that the psalmist does with regard to this, uh, the psalms in a happy life, is he gives us a promise, and it's a promise of success. And that's the point of the poem. Now, Hebrew mothers not only taught their kids just to repeat things, like out at the beginning and the end, but they taught them to repeat things in more sophisticated ways. Uh, think of a picture in your home. You have a frame, and then you have the mat. And the frame and the mat might be beautiful. You might enjoy looking at them. Somebody took a lot of time making them. But what's the point? The point is the picture in the middle. And often Hebrew poets and Narrators will arrange their material this way. They'll repeat things at the outside and then at the panels inside because they want to focus your attention in the middle. And that's how Psalm 1 is arranged. If you look at the beginning, you see language like um, <coughs> wicked and sinners and way. And if you look at the end, you see language like wicked and sinners and way. There's our frame. Then the panels in the middle are like a tree and like chaff. And in Hebrew, they even sound very much alike. Ka'etz, kamotz. Ka'etz, kamotz. So we have these panels. Then right in the very middle of the psalm is the end of verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4. Whatever he does prospers, the wicked are not so. That's the promise that is at the very center, poetically, of this poem. It's a promise that the righteous will prosper and the wicked will not. Now, we have to talk a little bit about that word. Because if I say to you, he's prosperous, what comes to your mind immediately and exclusively? Money. That's not the case with this Hebrew word. If I say to you, my sister is successful, what do you have to ask? In what? Being a mother? Being a teacher? Uh, being an athlete? Being in business? In other words, the way we use prosper, it's narrow, money. The way we use success is broad. 
It can include money, but much, much more. That's this word. This word in Hebrew, well, let's learn another Hebrew word. It's about time, right? This is a little tricky. Uh, this word starts with a s. Now, we use T-S in English, don't we? Hats, rats, mats, bats, cats. But we only use it at the end of words. We're not used to saying it up front, except in two words. Tsunami, which we don't say, do we? What do we say? Tsunami, we drop the T out, and tsetse fly, which we don't ever talk about anyhow, so forget that one. Uh, so this word start, in many Hebrew words start with that T-S sound. It's one letter in Hebrew, but it's a T. And so it's tsa. Everybody say tsa. And then the second syllable is lach. Like Johann Sebastian Bach. So tsalach. There you go. That's the word here that is translated uh, prosper, better translated success. Uh, turn to Isaiah. It's a well-known verse. Uh, look at Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 11. Uh, do we have Wi-Fi here? Um, let's, because for some strange reason, and I, it might be because of the Wi-Fi, um, I'm having an issue. So let's turn the Wi-Fi on. And I'm MPCA1 or MPCA? Maybe this will fix it. I'm ready to roll. I'm on just the regular MPCA. Okay. The one? Okay, let's cancel this and let's go to one. Okay, ready. Bingo. Now let's see if that solved this problem. Uh, there we go. What did I say, Isaiah 52, 11? 55, 11? Okay. 
This is a well-known passage where God says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. Now notice, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And that succeed is the same word as in Psalm 1. That's our salach. So what does succeed mean in Hebrew? It's very simple. It means accomplish that which I purpose. If you have a goal and you reach it, you've succeeded. If you have a goal and you don't reach it, you haven't succeeded. It's, it's that simple. And that's what our word means in, uh, in Psalm 1. So when we go back to Psalm 1, notice the radical promise. Whatever you do succeeds. You always reach your goal. That probably creates a little bit of tension. Doesn't it? Yeah. Well, it did for this fellow named Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 12. Notice Jeremiah says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. That's a kind of fancy way of saying, God, I've got a bone to pick with you. Notice what he then says, Why does the way of the wicked prosper? In other words, Jeremiah is praying to God, and he's being honest That's our lesson tomorrow morning, Sunday school. He's being honest with God. And he says, God, I don't get it. I have read Psalm 1. It's not real hard. By the way, God, I know Hebrew. Whatever the righteous do succeeds. It prospers. But when I turn on the news, I see righteous people who are not succeeding And I see wicked people who are. What gives? It's not supposed to be this way. It's kind of like your understanding of predestination. If your understanding of predestination doesn't lead people to say, that's not fair, then it's not Pauline. Because when Paul is describing predestination, he has to anticipate an objection. And the objection he anticipates is people saying, well, that's not fair. Yeah, you got it if you think it's not fair. And in the same way, if your understanding of Psalm 1 doesn't lead you to say it doesn't work that way, then you're not understanding Psalm 1 because Psalm 1 says whatever you do succeeds and not so with the wicked. That is the rule. Now there are, and when I teach Hebrew, there's one thing that my students do not like, and they're called exceptions. They don't like the exceptions. They just wish everything went according to the rules. And I say, well, this is not algebra, this is Hebrew. There are exceptions. And that's what Jeremiah was encountering. He's encountering exceptions to the way things are supposed to be. Because the way they are and the way they're supposed to be are not always the same in our lives. In the Old Testament, 
what book is a book about the biggest exception to the fact that righteous people are successful and prosperous and wicked people aren't? Job. You see, and, and see, Job believes Psalm 1. He says, if you're righteous, you're blessed. I'm righteous, I should be blessed. His friends believe Psalm 1. If you're not blessed, you're not righteous. They both believe the same thing. Job said, I know that I haven't done anything to deserve this, so why am I suffering? His friends said, you're suffering, what did you do to deserve it? They were just coming at it from looking at the opposite side of the same coin. So there are exceptions, and we have to be willing to deal with those exceptions. But let's not get into the habit of turning the exception into the rule. So that what we begin to expect is failure. What we expect is for wicked people to succeed and righteous people to fail. Jeremiah did not do that. He expected righteous people to be successful in life and not wicked people. And when he didn't encounter that, he just dealt with it. He didn't pretend that that's the way it's supposed to be. He went and complained to God about it and say, God, help me out here. Help me figure out what's going on in life because this isn't like what Psalm 1 says. There are those tensions that we experience in life. Uh, there's a story about... Um, Oh, uh, the, um, I always get these two fellas mixed up. Um, who wrote The Cross and the Switchblade? David Wilkins, Wilkerson. Wilkerson? Wilkerson. And then who wrote The Prayer of Jabez? Jabez. Wil Bruce Wilkinson. I want Bruce Wilkinson, the Prayer of Jabez guy. He was first, he was a young teacher at Multnomah School of the Bible out on the West Coast. And this is back in the day that some of you do not know anything about. I can tell by your age, but some of you will remember. Remember when you would go to register for a college class and you went into the gymnasium and there were tables all over the place with pieces of paper and you had to get your name on the paper before the like 30 slots filled up or you didn't get the class? Yeah, that's what registration was like. So he went to his first registration as a teacher, and uh, he's milling about the the uh, gymnasium, and uh, an, the old-timer who was on the Bible faculty came up to him, and he's ticked off. And he wants to know why this young guy has section two in this big Bible class where there's so everybody has to take it, so they divide it up into sections. And uh, he says, I have no idea. I'm just doing what the dean told me to do. He said, what's section two? He said, section two is where they put the best and the brightest, and I think I'm the one that should be teaching that class. Halfway through the semester, the dean and Will Bruce <laughs> walking across campus, and the dean says, uh, how do you like uh, class? Your classes? Great. How do you like teaching? Great. What's the favorite thing you're doing? Oh, my favorite thing, that Bible class, section two, I love it. The dean said, what section two? He said, you know where you put the best and the brightest? Oh, the dean said, we did, along with, we did away with that a long time ago. He went back to his office because he was also teaching section one, and they had just turned in their papers. Here were the papers for section one, and here were the papers for section two. Same amount of students, 
Quality of the paper, section one. Quality of the papers, section two. And he said to himself, what's the only difference between section one and section two? My expectations. I expected more of section two, and guess what I got? I got more. And uh, he, he says that there is a law that is built in to the way God has made the world work, and he calls it the law of expectation. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that it's an algebraic equation kind of law, but it certainly does work, doesn't it? Where we get what we expect often. I'm the, I'm the baby, and uh, I can remember how easy new grades were for me in grade school as I moved up because I had an elder sister and an older brother who paved a good way for me. And you know the first day of class when they call roll and the teacher says, Mark Futado, oh, are you, are you Jan's brother? You're Tim's brother. Yeah, they're really great. They did really well. What did the teacher expect out of me? And you know that it happens in the exact opposite way, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, when, when, our, when our baby, the fourth, went to high school, we went to meet the teachers, and we went to all of her teachers, and we said, she's nothing like her older brothers. <laughs> yeah, oh, you're, you're Charlie's brother. Yeah, and what's that teacher expect? She's expecting trouble from the get-go. And so guess what she gets? Yeah. My point simply is, this is theology, this is not algebra. But there is a principle here. And the principle is that God has given us a governing guideline that says that we should be expecting Him to bless us and give us flourishing lives and successful lives. Okay, it doesn't always work out that way. Deal with it when it doesn't. Like Jeremiah, go to God and talk to Him about it, but don't turn the exception into the rule and begin to expect that we're not going to flourish as God's people. So, we've looked at the Psalms and a happy life. It's a picture of blessedness and it's a promise of success. Now let's flip the coin and look at the Psalms and a holy life. And this we're going to deal with a little more briefly. Two things here. In this psalm, we get a call to delight in the Lord's instruction. Time for another Hebrew word. Uh, let's review. The book of Psalms is called Tehillim. Uh, we've also learned that success is Tzalach. We've learned the difference between Hallelujah and Alleluia. And uh, now this one is a softball. You've probably heard the word Torah before. Uh, Jews regularly refer to their whole Bible as Torah, or in particular, uh, what we call the Pentateuch, or the first uh, five books of the Bible. But uh, somebody speaking Hebrew wouldn't say Torah, would they? What would they say? Torah. Uh, and so that's, that's the word that is translated here, law, the law of the Lord. Torah Adonai, the, the Torah of the Lord. We want to look at what this is. Uh, fundamentally, Torah means instruction. 
Uh, somebody turn to Psalm 70. Somebody on this side turn to Psalm 78.1. Somebody on this side turn to, to Proverbs 1.8. Uh, ESV works very well here. So Psalm 78.1 and Proverbs 1.8. Who has 78.1? Yes. Go ahead. Give ear, O my people, to my Torah. See, it's the word Torah, not translated as teaching, but uh, not translated as law, but as teaching or instruction. Okay, who has Proverbs 1.8? Go ahead. Okay, notice that this is a beautiful poetic line. We said they typically have two cola, and the cola correspond. Father corresponds to mother, and teaching corresponds to instruction. And that word instruction in Hebrew is Torah. So it's a word that means instruction. Now, um, in the first five books of Moses, there are laws, right, in the narrow sense. Do this, don't do that. But those are instruction, aren't they? There are stories, but those are there for our instruction. There are genealogies. They're there for our instruction. There are poems. They're there for our instruction. In fact, Paul says that that everything that was written in the past was written for our instruction. Uh, Paul says that the scriptures are useful for teaching, for instruction. So instruction gives us a, a broader sense than law being narrow. So that's what's going on here. Um, they meditate on Torah Adonai, on the instruction of the Lord. Now, this instruction can be found in two places. The book of Psalms, we talked about the fact that it, like, and for some, nobody ever said this, but when I was growing up, this is how I thought the Bible came to be. Uh, one Saturday morning, somebody was sitting with a cup of coffee and a pen and said, God, I think you're going to inspire me to write the book of Psalms. I'm ready. Go. And, you know, they just, a whole pot of coffee. And then all of a sudden, all 150 Psalms were done. Well, we've seen last night that that's not how the, the Bible came about. The Holy Spirit inspired different people, different times, different places uh, to write different psalms and then inspired people to collect those psalms until we have the book as we know it. And um, so when the, when, the, when the book of Psalms was finished, 150 and the Holy Spirit said, we're done. No more additions, nothing. That was about the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, we read two different things. We read a text that says that they, they found the book of the law of the Lord that was given by Moses. And then we read that they found the book of the law of Moses that was given by the Lord. So what's that tell us about the relationship between the law of Moses and the law of the Lord? If the law of Moses comes through the Lord, and the law of the Lord comes through Moses, what is the law of the Lord? Same thing, law of Moses, the five books of Moses. 
So in the days when, you know, you're walking in Jerusalem, you go by the bookstore, you see a new sign in the window, Book of Psalms, finally published for the first time, it's complete, come get your copy. Uh, you were used to thinking the law of the Lord, the law of Moses. The law of the Lord, the five books of Moses. So if you want to meditate, Psalm 1, on the law of the Lord in order to experience this flourishing, you meditate on the five books of Moses. But the law of the Lord refers to another five books. Look in your translation. Uh, Psalm 1.1. 1, 1. You probably see another kind of heading there, don't you? It probably says book one. Can you see that? And uh, what does it say after that? No, I mean, in terms of book one, what psalms does it list? One through 41. I wonder why they say stop there. Maybe we ought to go to the end of Psalm 141 and find out. So let's go to the end of Psalm uh, 141. I'm sorry, not... The end of 41. Let's find out what we see there. Look at the last verse. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. We call this, it's a word that we used last night. Starts with a D. We call this a doxology. So there's a little doxology at the end of Psalm 41. And those words, Amen and Amen. Now, if you look at the beginning of Psalm 42, it says book two. And where does it tell us to stop there? 70, 72. So let's go to the end of 72 and just see what we might discover there. Verse 18 Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Another doxology. And then we have that little note that we talked about. The prayers of David, son of Jesse, are ended. Now, book three, where do we stop there? 89. Let's go to the end of Psalm 89, and just find out what we might see there. Verse 52, blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen. See, I told you this book is not random. It's been purposefully shaped. Now, if you had a, a, um, a, a computer in front of you with some Bible study software, and you said to your computer, Find me in the book of Psalms every place where you find the word amen and amen as a phrase, those three words. It would only find them three spots. And we've just looked at them. Now, where's book four end? 106. So let's go to the end of 106 and see what we might find there. Verse 48, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. 
Now you'll notice that all four, there, there, and there are only these four doxologies in the book of Psalms. When the Holy Spirit was finalizing the shape of this book, he said, I want you to divide the book of Psalms up. Not into six, not into four. I want you to divide it up into five books. Each one I want you to end with doxology. And of course, the fifth book ends with the grand doxology, 146, 147, 148, 149, 150, which is the doxology not only to book five, but the whole book. So, and this is part of the ancient text. The ancient book of Psalms is divided by doxologies into five books. For one thing, it doesn't ever, the Holy Spirit doesn't want you to forget while you're reading through the book of Psalms what your destiny is. So at the end of every book, he gives you a reminder of where you're going. You're heading for glory. Uh, and in addition to that, he says, I want this to be divided into five books, not four or six. You're already used to thinking about what being divided into five books. The law. And you know that the five books of Moses are Torah, their instruction. And so by putting the book of Psalms into five books, the Holy Spirit is saying, I want you to know the fundamental purpose of the book of Psalms. It's one word. In Hebrew, it starts with a T, Torah. In English, it starts with an I. It's instruction. This is a manual to instruct you in how to experience God's Osh Ray life. And uh, so, like the five books of Moses are Torah for you to meditate on, the five books of the Psalms are Torah, their instruction for you to meditate on that you might live a life that is a flourishing life. This, uh, this instruction, by the way, is our delight. Notice it says that. His delight is in the law of the Lord. One of the reasons why we delight in God's instruction is because it's good for us. See, sometimes if we think of God's word as being law, it can start to be like heavy, right? Weigh us down. But if we think of it as an instruction manual, it, it's here for, for our good. God knows that we need instruction on how to flourish in his world because by nature we're not necessarily going to do it anymore after the fall. Um, favorite story I like to tell on myself. I've told you that I'm a son of a cabinet maker, yes? So I know how to do woodworking. I know how to use power equipment. I know how to use hand equipment. I know how to put furniture together, etc. cetera. Uh, have any of you ever put together any of this like solder furniture? You take it out of the box and it has those real cool fasteners and you put it together. Yeah, I've, I've done a lot of those. Uh, I made a mistake once. When we moved to Florida, we were going to put our TV in the family room in the corner. And so we needed a corner TV stand. So we bought one of these knockdown things that you pull out of the box and you put it together. My mistake was I started at about 11 o'clock at night. I, that was wrong. And um, so, but... I can do this. I open it up, and guess what the box is missing? It's missing the instructions. 
I'm son of a cabinet maker. I've put this kind of stuff together before. I can do this. So I'm about three quarters of the way done. Now it's about one o'clock in the morning. And the pieces won't fit. Because when you put this stuff together, you have to go in. Yeah, don't go in order. You're in trouble. But I didn't have the instructions, but I figured I can figure it out. So, and you know, if you've ever put this stuff together, uh, the back that they give you, it's like real thin and it's always folded over. So for whatever reason, it's like 115 now, I decide to just open that back up. The instructions were right there. <laughs> yeah. And I can see where I'm out of sync with the instructions. And so I back up to get in sync with the instructions. I follow the instructions. It's done in no time. I go to bed. That has always stuck with me as an illustration of why God gave us the Bible. He didn't give us the Bible to weigh us down. He gave us the Bible because he loves us and he wants us to flourish and he wants us to know how to flourish in his world. And so he's given us an instruction manual uh, to teach us how to flourish. You'll know the truth, says the Bible, and the truth will weigh you down. No, the truth will do what? The truth will set you free. That's the book of Psalms. It's an instruction manual to set us free that we might learn how to flourish and that when we don't flourish, we'll know how to deal with it. We'll learn from the book of Psalms how to be honest with ourselves and with God and how to wrestle through those hard times when things aren't working the way they're supposed to be working. It's a wonderful manual. It even teaches us how to deal with the exceptions. Honest Life, Sunday School class tomorrow. So there's this call to delight in the Lord's instruction because it's a manual to teach us how to flourish. And then there's a call to meditate on the Lord's instruction. Now, um, in terms of meditation, here's another example of how we have to be very careful not to impose modern meaning on the ancient text. In, in modern American culture, if I were to say, let's have a group meditation right now, there are two things that would characterize us. What's one thing that would characterize the room if we were meditating? Silence. And what would be the characteristic with regard to our minds? What's our goal? Close it off. Empty it. So silence and emptying the mind. Now, I'm not saying that silence is bad. And stilling our minds from all the chaotic thoughts is bad. I'm just saying that's not biblical meditation. Um, when I grew up, we would have prayer meeting on Wednesday night. Maybe some of you grew up with this kind of prayer meeting. The pastor would start by reading a Bible text and having a very short devotional. And then he would take prayer requests in a room about this size with about this many people. And then after he took prayer requests, he would say, let's pray. And what did we then do? Everybody prayed. How? 
everybody prayed at the same time out loud. Uh, that's the tradition that I grew up with in terms of, we weren't Presbyterian, by the way. Uh, but if you know any Korean Presbyterians, that's a traditional Korean uh, Presbyterian prayer meeting. Everybody prays at the same time and everybody prays out loud. Now, that doesn't work very well if we want to have meaningful conversation because we can't process all of that all at once, right? But guess who can? Yeah, God can God can process it all. If you're all praying silently or praying out loud, it doesn't make any difference to God. He's got a processor like you can't believe. In fact, his processor is infinite. He never needs to upgrade because it's an infinite processor. And so it's, it's no big deal for God. But um, if we were meditating together, that's what the room would sound like. It would sound like one of my old Christian Missionary Alliance prayer meetings. Uh, why so? Uh, notice Joshua 1.8. Look at Joshua 1 and chapter 8. This is when God is preaching a sermon, and the only person in the congregation is Joshua. And notice he says, this book of the Torah, there's our law, this book of the Torah shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it. Uh, now look at another text. Look at Psalm 19. And verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. See, in both of these texts, you're meditating with your mouth. The Hebrew word here is a word that's used in a variety of ways. It can be used for the low growl of a lion, the low cooing of a dove. It can be used for inarticulate human speech. Have you ever been in a situation, uh, kind of like out in the uh, vestibule, where there are a lot of conversations going on? I know this has never happened to you, but you can imagine it happening to someone. Where you're in a conversation with somebody, but you can hear another conversation, and that one's actually a little more interesting to you than the one that you're in. You can't quite tell what they're talking about, but it's caught your ear. That's this word. Uh, and so... If, if to meditate is to intone the text. Remember, silent reading is a modern invention, relatively speaking. Ancients didn't read silently. The Hebrew word for read is the word for call out. Because if I'm reading, I'm calling the words out loud so that you can hear them. And so an ancient meditation would be you're, you're low and slow and intoning the text. That's meditation. It's something that you do with your mouth. By the way, I tell my Hebrew students, if you want to memorize your Hebrew vocabulary better, memorize your vocabulary out loud. Don't just look at it, but say it, hear it, see it. Write it. Use all of your senses. And uh, that's a good way for you to memorize Scripture as well. 
Use all of your senses, and it just helps it stick uh, better. So meditation is something that we do uh, with our mouths. And the other thing that we said was, in modern meditation, the goal is to disengage the brain. In biblical meditation, the goal is to engage the brain. Did you notice that, uh, that, that Psalm 19 says, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. Now, this is a difference between how ancients pictured things and how moderns picture things. Point to the spot on your body where you think. Some of you don't think, I guess. Okay, point to the part of your body where you feel. Okay, so how many times have preachers said, you got to get it to go from here to here? Well, in the language of the king, King James, Paul speaks of bowels of compassion. So the Bible does it different ways, but one way it does is that, as again, the language of King James, as a man thinketh, In his heart, so is he. Bowels of compassion. So sometimes the Bible pictures us as thinking here, never here, feeling here. By the way, have any of you have have you ever had butterflies? Where did you get butterflies? In your fingers? In your feet? No, you get them right here, right? So we can associate feeling with our gut. now, we, where do we think we feel? Well, we think we feel with our hearts, right? But feelings are really neurological responses. We really feel with our brains. as So these are just, we use the heart as a metaphor for feeling. Ancients use the heart as a metaphor for thinking. The point is, when it talks about meditating with the heart, it's talking about thinking. When you meditate, you're engaging your brain. You're not turning it off. You're thinking about the Word of God. You're, we were talking last night. I think it was last night. Maybe it was this morning. I don't know. It was a long time ago. Um, about, the, uh, about the benefits of... It was last night. About the benefits of reading and rereading and rereading and rereading. You know, you can read a chapter a a day in Proverbs and read through it in a month, or you can take one proverb and reread it every day for a month, thinking about it more and more and how it applies to your life. Meditation. Slow. It's slow. It's kind of like the cow chewing its cud. It 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 brings it back up because there's still more to get out of it. And then it brings it down, and then it brings it back up, because that's Hagah. That's meditation. Turning the Word of God over and over, uh, getting as much out of it as we possibly can. Thinking deeply, thinking deeply in the Spirit, because this is a spiritual activity. That's why the Apostle John says that you, you don't need anyone to, to teach you because you have an anointing, and that anointing is real. We as Presbyterians don't speak this way, but it's biblical. You're all anointed with the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, it was the prophet, the priest, and the king. You are all anointed with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is your ultimate teacher. So when you're meditating, you're not just reading commentaries. 
you're relying on the Holy Spirit to show you what you need from that word. Um, I hope that when you come to church on Sunday mornings, you come to listen to Brandon preach. But I hope you do more than that. I hope you're coming listening for what the Holy Spirit has to say. And he will testify, I am sure, that it's amazing how the Holy Spirit can apply things to your lives through his preaching that you never, he never even thought about. I can remember times when I was a pastor, uh, a woman would come up to me after class, after the sermon, and she would say, do you have a microphone in our kitchen on Sunday mornings? And um, Or I would make an off, uh, an unplanned comment, an unplanned illustration. Somebody would come up to me after church and say, wow, that was a great sermon you preached. I say, well, what? And they would mention that one thing that I never planned on saying. If to them it was the whole sermon, it was an off-the-cuff remark to me. But that's how the Holy Spirit can work. You see, meditation, you have to engage your brain and think, but you have to do so in humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit as your teacher. That's flourishing. Uh, The book of Psalms is a manual to teach you how to flourish how to experience uh, well-being more and more in your life as you anticipate experiencing the perfection of that well-being in the life to come. How to live a life of meaning and purpose. You know why you're here. You know why you're unique. You know why God has made you the way that he has made you and you're striving to live your life now. You're no longer trying to live somebody else's life, but the life that God has called you to live. And that's a holy life. It's a life that is guided by the by the instruction of the Lord, whether that instruction is the five books of Moses, whether it's the five books of the Psalms, whether it's the four Gospels, whether it's Paul's epistles, the general epistles, the book of Acts, the book of Proverbs, you're relying on the Word of God as your ultimate rule of faith and life. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, time to reflect on the, uh, the book of Psalms together this morning one more time, and Psalm 1 in particular. We're grateful uh, for your instruction of us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would write these words on our hearts, that they might uh, deepen our faith, and that they might shape our walk before you, that we might experience more of that flourishing for which you have created us uh, and uh, for which Jesus has come to redeem us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.